Well, since Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, when he said in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, we have known that Jesus would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed in Jerusalem. Now, why don't we just go ahead and turn there even, uh, Peter's confession, Matthew 16. <clears throat> Starting in verse 17, Jesus answered him, right after Peter confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then in verse 20 it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. And then in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so the Father had revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, but Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. Tell no one that he was the Christ. And it would seem that the reason for that is that God's plan was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again. Now this scene that we just looked at was in uh, Caesarea Philippi. And that city was 25 miles north of Galilee in Gentile territory. And from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem. And now, finally, today in our text that we're going to look at in Matthew 21, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. And everything from here on until the post-resurrection meeting in Galilee, everything from here on in our gospel is in Jerusalem. And so we are in Matthew 21 and everything until 28 verse 16 happens in Jerusalem and the, the nearly surrounding area. And what we're going to see today is that the time of secrecy is over. Jesus is going to publicly present himself to Jerusalem as the Christ, as the King. And so let's read our text, Matthew 21. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The foal, I, you know, all week I was going, make, I, mean, I knew I was going to mess that up, but I was hoping not like immediately, okay? I'm going to do that again, so just bear with me. The, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, 
and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, I called this sermon today, Welcoming the King. Welcoming the King. Now, I I don't always tell you my sermon titles. I'm not really big on sermon titles. But this time I think it's important because we need to see that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, He is signaling to everyone that He is the King. Now, He's a humble King riding on a donkey, but He is King and His entry into the city proclaims this louder than we might recognize simply by reading the text. And all of the confrontation during this week, everything that kind of happens after this moment really flows from this event and it it signals to the political and religious authorities in Jerusalem that Jesus is the King. And all of the hostility that we're going to see that comes because Jesus enters Jerusalem as a King with this royal procession. And this entry into the city is reminiscent of other leaders in Israel who rode on donkeys, and we're going to look at that later. In fact, there's going to be three demonstrations of Jesus' authority as we kind of get into this section. First of all, in our text, Jesus rides into Jerusalem with all of the hosannas to the son of David. And then second, Jesus will cleanse the temple grounds, driving out all who sold and bought in verses 12 to 17. And then third, Jesus will curse the fig tree, which perhaps only the disciples saw, but Matthew wrote it in here for us. This is in verses 18 to 22. And then if you look at verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And so in all of these things, Jesus' kingly authority is on display. Now we know that Jesus is the anointed one, that he's the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the son of David. We already knew that in chapter 1 and verse 1 of this gospel. Remember the very first book, uh, the very first verse of this gospel, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. But the people of Jerusalem don't know everything that we know. And so we have seen his authority and his power and his teaching and in his miracles. Most of that was done in Galilee. In John's gospel, Jesus goes back and forth between Galilee and and Jerusalem. He goes to the feasts in Jerusalem. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke only record this one visit to the city at the end of Jesus' ministry. And so the people of Jerusalem are surprised by Jesus. For the most part, they do not know who he is or what he has done. And so when he comes with this royal declaration and begins to show his authority, they are taken aback and they resist. And they are stirred up, according to verse 10, I believe it is. 
Now, we've already seen some of the hostility and, um, you know, from the scribes and the Pharisees that have come from Jerusalem and they traveled to Galilee to confront him and to ask him questions. But, but now as Jesus enters the city, things escalate quickly. And our passage today is really designed to set the stage for everything else that we're going to see. We will see prophecy fulfilled. We will see some remarkable providence. Somehow Jesus knows where these donkeys will be. We'll see a display of his power over nature when he rides on a donkey that's never before ridden. And we'll see Jesus proclaimed as the coming one, the son of David. And so let's look at it then. We're going to look at it under three headings today. The first one is this. Number one, the preparation of the king, verses 20, uh, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 21. The preparation of the king. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. And we'll stop there for a minute. Jesus and his disciples, they drew near to Jerusalem. They were most recently, you remember, they were in Jericho. And they've climbed now about 3,000 feet, and they're now on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is a couple of hundred feet higher above the Temple Mount, and so there's quite a view of the whole city. From there, there's really a, a panoramic view. Now, Bethphage was, was on the Mount of Olives somewhere, but we aren't exactly sure where. It's also near Bethany. And the Mount of Olives is a, a north-south range just to the east of Jerusalem, if you can kind of picture that. So it runs north and south, and it's east of Jerusalem. It's about two or three miles long. Now, according to John 12 and verse 1, Jesus came to Bethany, which is also on the Mount of Olives, and he did so six days before Passover. Now, this was most likely on Saturday, where, when it was six days before Passover, most likely on Saturday. John chapter 12 and verse 12 says that the next day on the Sunday, it, that was the day when they took the palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's how John records it in John 12, 12. Now, if the chronology is right, that means that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples on the Thursday evening. Now, we'll look at the chronology of this week maybe in more detail another time, but for now, what I, what I want you to know is that there's a whole thing here where the, the northern Jews, like Jesus and his disciples from Galilee, they calculated days from sunrise to sunrise, while the southern Jews in Jerusalem, they counted days from sunset to sunset. And so Jesus and his disciples, they celebrated their Passover meal on the Thursday, but other Jews would have celebrated their Passover meal and had their Passover meal on the Friday, and that would have been on the, around the exact time that Jesus was crucified. And so Jesus was slain right when the southern Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem, would have killed their Passover lambs. And that really is a remarkable providence of God. And so our text, what we see now is happening on Sunday, or at least the celebration and the crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, that is on the Sunday. Now at the end of verse 1, Jesus sent two disciples. 
saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, we don't know what village was immediately in front of Bethphage. It's a little difficult to understand to hear exactly what happens, or at least how all of this happens. And no matter how we understand this, I think we need to acknowledge that there's some level of supernatural understanding on the part of the Lord. Even if we look at this as a, a prearranged event, it would, it would have to have been prearranged months ahead, ahead of time. Jesus wasn't recently in Jerusalem. And the colt is the donkey's foal. It's a, it's a young donkey. According to Luke 19 and verse 30, it's, Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And the fact that no one has ever sat on it indicates that it would be quite young. You, you know, you almost wonder if it was born the last time Jesus would have been in the area. And I'm just pointing out here that for Jesus to know that the mother and the colt would be immediately found tied up together, it seems to require some kind of prophetic foreknowledge. Now, it's possible that Jesus had never met the owners and and. Maybe that's the way this worked, but it seems more likely to me that, that we have, there, there's been some kind of pre-arrangements made. You know, just think about this. Imagine if, if you caught someone untying your donkey, or ma- imagine you kind of go outside and, and, and someone's kind of hopping into your car right now. And, uh, and they said, well, the Lord needs it, you know? I don't know how you would respond to that, but I'd be like, yeah, I don't think the Lord needs it, you know. Um, you know, I'd say more likely, yeah, the Lord says you shall not lie and you shall not steal. You know, some commentators actually think that the Lord needs them as some kind of a prearranged password. And I, I definitely lean that way. But again, sometimes Matthew and and Mark and Luke, for that matter, they just don't give us all the details that we would like. Luke does tell us, this is Luke 19, starting in verse 32, so those who, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, verse 35. So the owners did catch the disciples untying the colt, and the disciples said, the Lord needs them, and they sent the animals, and again, according to Luke, they sent them at once. Actually, that's the last part of verse 3 in our text. They sent them, uh, they will send them at once, and, and it seems like they did exactly that. Now, I don't know how you would have felt, but I would have kind of been nervous uh, walking up to town untying a donkey and her colt kind of looking around is anyone going to come out and say why are you doing this and I'm going to have to give this kind of password but that's what the disciples did and it's interesting here when you when you think about it that Jesus refers to himself as Lord now this is the Greek word kurios which means Lord master owner 
And we know that Jesus wasn't the owner of these donkeys. We saw in Luke that the owners were saying, hey, why are you untying this thing? And so Jesus here seems to refer to himself as Lord. Kurios, you remember, is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated the word Yahweh. And we've seen time and time again in this gospel, people come to Jesus for healing and they've bowed before him in worship and they've called him Lord. They've called him Kurios and he healed them. Jesus has spoken of himself as Lord before, for example, in referring to the final judgment in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus refers to himself here as Lord and, and really shows himself to be the one who's going to judge the world on the day of judgment. Most recently in this gospel, the two blind men called Jesus Lord in Matthew chapter 20. If you look at verse 30 there to 33, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus passing, or when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus, stopping, called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And so in our text, Jesus refers to himself as Lord. And it's literally ha-kurios, it's the Lord. And at this point in the gospel, it seems that we should give it the full weight of significance, this, this kurios here. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. And it's him, not his father, who needs the animals. And so Jesus has needs of it. The Lord has need of it. Yahweh has need of it. And so the Lord of the universe needs this donkey and her colt. And his disciples do exactly what he says. They bring them to Jesus. And then if you look at verse 4 of our text, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, this was more literally spoken through the prophet. God himself spoke in scripture through the human instruments who wrote his word. And in this case, Matthew combines Isaiah 62.11 with Zechariah Nine nine. I'm going to want you to turn to those. Ze- uh, Isaiah 62.11, Zechariah 9.9, 9, and you might want to try to keep your finger in our verse as well. And so let's go here. Uh, Isaiah 62.11. It would seem that Jesus is deliberately trying to fulfill prophecy. He's seeking to fulfill the prophecy by coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And so Isaiah 62, verse 11, it says, Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so Isaiah 62 has, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Matthew has, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Now, the daughter of Zion, that's a poetic way of speaking about Jerusalem. And so we could say, say to Jerusalem, behold, your salvation comes. Now, turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9, near the end of the latter prophets. Uh, Zechariah 9 and verse 9. It says here, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So there's the daughter of Zion again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of these two texts. And both mention the coming of salvation. Jesus is going to die on the cross as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem to accomplish our salvation. Now, Matthew focuses on the Zechariah text, which presents Jesus as the king. And so he introduces it by kind of quoting from uh, Isaiah 62.11, but then he really changes over to Zechariah 9.9, which focuses on Jesus as the king. And this king in Zechariah, he has salvation, and he comes as the king. Now, Matthew leaves out the middle part of the Zechariah quote. He leaves out righteous and having salvation is he because he wants to focus on the humility of the king. He is king, but he is also humble. The word for humble there is the Greek word praus, and it means humble or gentle or meek. And the idea is one who's not overly impressed with a sense of one's own self-importance. We've seen this word before in Matthew, Matthew 5 and verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Or in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. There's that same word, prouse. I am prouse and lowly, gentle and lowly, gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. And so Jesus is meek. He's not overly concerned about his own importance. He's also humble. He's lowly. The idea of that word is he's unpretentious. And we only see this word, this word prowse, one other time in Scripture, 1 Peter 3, 4, where it speaks of the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so Jesus is meek. He is gentle. He's a king, but on the, at the same time, he doesn't fit the people's idea of a king. 
See, when the, the Jews of the day thought of the king, they thought of Psalm 2. And let's actually go there. You remember Psalm 2 and the king that's spoken about there, the messianic king. This is a, a messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 2. I'll just start reading here from verse 6. The Lord is speaking here and he says, As for me, I have set my king. There's our word king there. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's Vessel. This is how the, the Jews of that day really thought about the king. He was going to rule with a rod of iron over the nations. And so in continuing on in Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Israel was looking for the king, the, the messianic king who would rule over other kings. And he would rule them with a rod of iron. And he was a ruler that was angry and full of wrath to destroy his enemies. But they didn't seem to be able to harmonize that with the fact that the same messiah king would come humble on a donkey and having salvation. Now when Jesus returns again, He's going to come in wrath. And He's going to come and He's going to judge and He's going to rule. But first He came in humility. The first time He came, He came to save sinners. He came gently and meekly to His own people. You see, Israel wanted a, a king that would come on a war horse, but that is not how... Jesus came. Now, one day we will see a king come on a war horse. And to see that, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. This is Jesus' second coming. And he comes in a different way the next time that he comes, starting in verse 11 of Revelation 19. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Not a donkey, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We just saw that in Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But again, before all that, our king came to Jerusalem humble on a colt, on the foal, on the foal of a beast 
of burden, and he came to accomplish salvation. And so we've seen kind of Jesus set the whole scene up. We called it the preparation of the king. Now let's go and get back to our text. Look at number two here now. We're going to see the proclamation of the king. And so Jesus prepares the way for his entry, and now there's going to be this proclamation of him as king in verses 6 to 9. The proclamation of the king, Matthew 21, 6 to 9. And this is where Jesus is now going to actually fulfill Isaiah 62, 11 and Zechariah 9, 9. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. We could preach a whole sermon on just that verse. Obedience is an important part of the Christian life. It's an important part of our spiritual growth. And if we're disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, and if we call Him Lord, then we must do what He says. Jesus asks in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Verse 47, continuing in Luke 6, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of a wise man who built his house on the rock, or of a foolish man who built on the sand. Again, our text says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. The word there, as, is really literally means just as Jesus had directed them. And wisdom requires us to do the same. Wisdom requires us to obey. We must be hearers of the word of God and we must seek to apply it to our lives. We must hear and do what Jesus tells us to do. I, I love that song. We don't have it in our hymnal, but it's uh, trust and obey. Do you guys know that one? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so the disciples did that. They went in, in faith, trusting the Lord, and they did just as he directed them. And then verse 7, they brought the donkeys and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And so their cloaks became saddles. They didn't come from Galilee with saddles. They put them, they put their cloaks on both the animals and he, Jesus, sat on them on the cloaks. Okay, he sat on the cloaks. Jesus did not sit on two donkeys. Okay, some people talk about a, a bit of a circus act there or they think about this awkward thing. Jesus didn't sit on two donkeys. He sat on the cloaks. Matthew and Mark actually, or sorry, Mark and Luke only mentioned the colt. And they don't even bother with the mother. Remember earlier what we said from Luke, Luke 19.30 again. Go into the village in front of you where entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, as you know, I am, I am no expert on farming. In fact, I can't even hardly say 
the foal of a, of a donkey. It's really hard for me to even think about that. Now, I'm not even sure just to, like, I'm not even sure if I've ever seen a donkey. Okay, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I remember Dave had some kind of animal in his farm, but I, I don't remember if that was a donkey or not. I've seen some little ponies before, and I tried to ride one time, I tried to ride a baby cow, a young cow. I'm not even sure if we could call that trying. You know, I, I put my hands on its back, and I tried to jump up, and it kind of ran, and I, that, was, that, was, that was enough for me. But what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that I, I'm not sure if this, little unbroken colt needed its mother for milk or if it needed its mother just to calm it for the journey or both, but it would seem that something remarkable is happening that Jesus can ride this little guy. This is a, this thing's never been ridden before. Okay. Never been ridden before. Now you guys can tell me after the service how that's going to look, but I just, I don't think you can just kind of hop on this thing and, and drive this guy into Jerusalem. Especially if we look at verse 8, which, which could be translated and, and perhaps should be translated, the very great crowd instead of most of the crowd. This is a, a word, it's the superlative actually. It's a, it's a, the, the most or the greatest. Matthew might even be trying to say that this is the biggest crowd that Jesus had ever participated in. Now it's possible that we could think of it as, as the largest part of the crowd, but, but however we understand the, the wording here, this is likely the biggest crowd that Jesus has ever been in. This is the Passover crowd. Now as far as I've been able to tell, and, and the, the, the numbers are, are massively ranging, but Jerusalem had somewhere between about 30,000 people some people say 180,000 people. Some people say even 100,000 people. But around Passover, when, when all of the Jews from all of the world would come to Jerusalem, this number doubles so that Jerusalem, instead of having about 30,000 people, would have 70,000 people. Or if you take another commentator and say it had about 180,000 people, he would say that it went up to about 250,000 people. Or if you go with the one that said that there was about 100,000 people in Jerusalem, it would climb to as much as a million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And I would expect a young colt from Bethphage, which is a city that's so small that we can't even find it, we don't even know where it is, I would expect that a young colt from there would do his best to buck off his rider and get away from the crowds. But Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, keeps it under perfect control. And we have seen already, we've seen his power over nature. And so we're not maybe surprised that he would have power even over this young colt that's never been ridden, but even with that, he has the mother maybe leading the way, helping to calm the colt, or maybe even providing for its sustenance. Again, we don't have all the details that we might like. But now we come to verse 8 of our text. And it says that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him. Remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem as well, and so they're before and after, and they're, they're going to Jerusalem, and, and they were shouting. 
They were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so the very large crowd, or if we're to translate it as the ESV, the most of the, the crowd, the largest part of the crowd, they kind of give Jesus what we might think of as a red carpet, carpet entry, and they make paths of, of garments and branches for this colt to walk on. Now, according to one ancient source, pilgrims that were coming to Jerusalem were expected to walk into the city. Now, if almost everyone was walking, but you come in on a donkey, what picture are you giving? Now, before we answer that, consider this, that that Jesus had walked from Caesarea Philippi to Bethany and Bethphage, and Jesus is only about a mile or two out of Jerusalem. It's, he's walked, one commentator said, about, about a hundred miles to get here. And now there's only a couple of miles to go. He's not tired. There's something more going on here. He, he doesn't get everyone to ride a donkey. It's not like there's a, a donkey for all 12 of the disciples. And so what's going on here? Well, Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. We already saw that. Behold, your king is coming to you. But I think this is also intended to remind us and remind the people of Jerusalem about other kings and leaders who rode on donkeys. For example, 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 to 39, Solomon rode on David's own mule. And he did that to, he rode on that to his coronation where he was anointed as king by Nathan. And according to 1 Kings 139, they said, long live King Solomon. But uh, Solomon rode on David's own mule. David had him go on his own mule. And you kind of wonder, is, is David's mule somehow recognizable that everyone's going to go, oh, there's David's mule and Solomon's riding on it. Well, according to 2 Samuel 13.29, each of David's sons had their own mule. And you remember maybe when Absalom rebelled against David, his father, and the men of, of David pursued Absalom, there was that memorable scene in 2 Samuel 18.9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now, I know, I, again, I told you I'm not a farmer, and I know that a mule's not a donkey, but there, there's a, a similarity here at the very least. One of the lesser-known judges of Israel was uh, Ab, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, and he judged Israel. This is Judges 12, 13, and 14. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. And perhaps Abdom got this idea from Jer. This is Judges 10 and verse 3. Jer the Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years. Verse 4, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities and they called them Havoth Jer, the villages of Jer to this day, or tents of Jer, which are in the land of Gilead. And so I think we could almost say that Israel has a tradition of judges and kings who rode on donkeys and other beasts of burden. 
Uh, R.T. France summarized the whole scene this way. He says, quote, Among a crowd of pilgrims on foot, the rider on the donkey intended to be noticed and expected his supporters to draw the appropriate conclusion, end quote. He also said a little bit later, he said, Among the Passover crowds coming into the city, it would have been possible for Jesus and his disciples to arrive without drawing attention to themselves, but Jesus has not come to slip quietly into Jerusalem, end quote. And so the crowd recognized the symbolism, and they responded as Jesus intended with shouts of acclamation to the Son of David. Again, Son of David is a kingly title. Hosanna literally means save. But it seems to have kind of become something of an exclamation or a cry of praise. It's, it seems to have lost its meaning and it's just a, a proclamation. Uh, praise the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Even as it is in English, we can just say Hosanna and we don't really have a meaning for it. It's just an exclamation. It's a, a, a moment of praise. And so Hosanna to the Son of David is like praise the Son of David. Or like we might say even long live the king is the idea here. And it's an enthusiastic declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the long awaited king of Israel. Now perhaps some of the crowd had picked up this language again from the blind men who had said not long ago on the way to Jerusalem in Jericho, Lord have mercy on us, son of David. And again, when the crowd told them to be silent, they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now John tells us in his gospel that the resurrection of Lazarus is what drew the crowd. But regardless of why they were drawn to him, they recognized the symbolism and they began to acclaim him as the king. And to do so, they used the words of Psalm 118, which is known as a Hallel Psalm. And the pilgrims would, would sing this song during the feast days in Jerusalem and maybe even on the road. And so they, they, they think of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of the most quoted messianic psalms in the New Testament. And verse 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's again Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, which is what the crowd seems to be quoting. I'm going to read this from the Hebrew for you. See if you can kind of pick up on this. It's, it's verse 25. Ana Yahweh. Hosiana. Hosiana sounds like Hosanna. It is, it is Hosanna. And then again, Anna, Yahweh, Hats, Lichachna. And then it's Berek, Hara, Bashem, Yahweh. Blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the people are, are picking up this, this cry of praise from Psalm 118 and they don't really necessarily know the meaning of Hosanna. They're not asking for salvation. But they are just saying, save us, Yahweh, Hosanna, Yahweh, and, and give success. Let us, uh, oh, Yahweh, please, Yahweh, save, please, Yahweh, succeed. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. And the psalm is asking Yahweh to succeed and save. And it it seems to be that the, the answer to this request, this prayer in verse 25, comes through the one who comes in Yahweh's name in verse 26. This one is the Messiah. Now you remember in John's moment of doubt, he asked, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And and what we're seeing here is that this one who comes in the name of the Lord is the expected Messiah. And so the crowd says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now it would seem that what we've seen so far in verses 6 to 9, that this happened on the way to Jerusalem. And there were, again, crowds before and, and crowds behind. And, and these will have largely been people coming from Galilee and, and really Jews from every nation kind of taking that very common route through Jericho, through the, 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 the Gentile territory on the east, not going through Samaria. Samaria. And they're, they're coming for Passover in Jerusalem. But now in verse 10 and 11, we're going to get a a different group now. And we're introduced now to the daughter of Zion. We're introduced to the city of Jerusalem. And they're not nearly as enthusiastic. And I, I think Matthew wants us to see a contrast here between the crowds that are coming from Galilee and the nations and even the, the city of Jerusalem. I, I called this in verse three, the, the perception of the king in verses 10 and 11. The perception of the king. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now the question of verse 10 is a key theme for Matthew. And it's one of the most important questions that could ever be asked, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the wrong answer here could be the difference between life and death. Now, I know that we've talked about this, who is Jesus, so many times in these last four years. But I want you to think about this. Could you answer this? If you were there on that day, how would you answer, who is this? Who is this? I think we should be able to answer this in two ways. I think there's two ways that we need to answer this question. We need to answer this both theologically and devotionally. Now, what do I mean by theologically and devotionally? I'm not sure that I've ever kind of used this language before, but we need to answer this theologically and devotionally. Theologically, what, what we mean here is, is we mean we need to answer this doctrinally. We need a true understanding of who Jesus is. We need a, not only a true understanding, but we need a full understanding of who he is. You see, the, the crowd that day, they were right. Jesus was a prophet. 
In fact, they even go so far as to say he is the prophet, and I think they might even mean that he is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. But as true as that is, it really doesn't go far enough. See, high views of Jesus aren't necessarily saving views of Jesus. You can have a high view of Jesus and not have a full view of Jesus, not have a right view of Jesus, not have a saving view of who he is. And so theologically, we need to believe that Jesus is God, the Son, who took on a human nature to come into the world to pay the penalty for our sin. Theologically, we need to know that Jesus is both God and man, that he is fully God, fully man, or truly God, truly man. That he was perfect, that he was holy, that he was sinless, that he came as our representative to die in our place for our sins on the cross. That's the theology, and we absolutely need to know it for ourselves, and we need to know it for others who ask this question, who is Jesus Christ? We need to be able to explain that to others theologically and accurately. See, again, the crowd's knowledge falls short. They seem not to understand what they're even saying in verse 9 when they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. But we also need more than a mere theological knowledge of Christ. <clears throat> you see, many people can answer rightly this question, and they can, they can give you all of the theology, but they still don't have a complete perception of the King. You see, you can know it all intellectually also and still come short of salvation. You can be a, a professor in a, a university and be able to explain the hypostatic union and understand all of those words and not actually be saved. You see, salvation requires a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, but it also moves from that true knowledge into what we might call a love for Him. See, salvation is a knowledge that transforms the heart. It's a knowledge that recognizes Christ's value, His glory. It recognizes His greatness. And now with that knowledge, we, we come to Him as a living person and we trust Him and we enjoy Him. And we find pleasure in Him. We find peace in Him. We find the forgiveness of our sins. We find reconciliation and fellowship with God through Him. Redemption. And that's what I mean now by devotionally. We must have a devotional understanding. We must know that there's true joy and peace. We find in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that we need as fallen sinners. He fits our every need. He is our perfect Savior. And we even could cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is worthy of our praise and of our lives. He is the blessed one and our souls bless Him for who He is and for what He's done. And, and we love Him and delight in Him and, and love to hear Him honored and glorified. Oh, friends, do you know Jesus in this way? With your minds and with your hearts. Do you know Jesus intellectually with your mind and do you know Him devotionally in your heart with love towards Him that, that burns for Him? 
You see, the crowds, they knew too little, and the city then is left without a true knowledge of who he is. They call him a prophet, but they didn't recognize him as their Messiah. And so I would urge you this morning, don't make the same mistake. Strive to enter at the narrow gate. Make sure that you know Jesus theologically and make sure that you know him devotionally. Know him intellectually with the mind and know him affectionately with the heart. And do not rest until you love him and you would gladly lose your life for his sake. And so this morning we've looked at three uh, headings. We've looked at our text under three headings. We've seen the preparation of the king. We've seen the proclamation of the king in verses 6 to 9. And we've seen the perception of the king in verses 10 and 11. This was Jesus' royal coronation. And again, he's a great king. We saw in Revelation 19 that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And that saying there, king of kings, that means that he is the king above all kings. He is above all kings, all rulers. And this view of him as king, I think, needs to shape our lives more than it does. You see, as Canadians, I don't know how you feel, but as Canadians, we have some connection to the King of England, right? Some kind of connection. Now, I don't know about you, and, and it's fine if you're this way, but, but I'm, I'm not very excited about the King. You know, if, like, honestly, if, if the King came to Alberta, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to see him. And, and honestly, if the King came to Lacrete, I, like, if I had something else going on, I might just kind of continue on with that. You know, maybe I'd go, I don't know, maybe Jody would want to go, whatever, I'm not sure. But anyways, we know about kings. But you know, there's some kings that I would love to see. Like I would, I would love to see Nebuchadnezzar, the glory of, of him and his kingdom. Remember, he got saved, it would seem, and became a believer, wrote some of scripture. I would love to meet Solomon, the king, or David, his father, the, the king of war, the man with blood on his hands, King David. And if one of those kings was around, if, or if one of those kings was my king, you know, if I was, if I was in the, or under the rule of King David in Israel as a saved man, David's a saved man, I'm a believer, I think I would be honored to serve that king and, and serve my country. And so do you see where this kind of goes here as we think about this? Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. He is the heir of the universe. He is the rightful king of this world. And soon he's going to return to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And when he does, he's going to reward us for our faithful service. And you and I have an amazing opportunity to serve this exalted king each and every day of our lives. And we can serve him in this hostile world. And so we should wake up every morning and we should say something like, I get to serve this glorious king today. I get to fellowship with the king. I get to, I get to hang out with the king. I get to read the king's word. I get to study his laws and obey them and apply them to my lives. I get to, to absorb his wisdom and glorify him in this world as I, as I live it out. I get to sing the praise of this king and I get to meditate on his majesty. That'll get you out of bed in the morning. 
I get to tell others about this great and glorious King and about the salvation that's available in Him. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men from the east, they, they said, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw His star when it rose and we have come to worship Him. And this attitude that moved these wise men from the east to come hundreds of miles across the known world to worship the king, still a baby. This same attitude should move us every day to worship and serve and love our great king, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, let's pray. Father, thank You that we could come this morning and, and see our King in His royal coronation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. Thank You for sending Him. Father, help us to rightly recognize Him and bow to Him and worship Him as King, not only as the King, but also as our King, as our Lord, we pray for each one here that they would truly know this Jesus both theologically and devotionally. And Father, for us who do know Him in this way, we pray again that You would continue to give us greater vision of Your Son and that it would affect our lives so that we can live more rightly for Him in this world. And Father, we pray this for Your glory, for His glory for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of all that you're seeking to accomplish in this world. We pray now that as we go and, and come and sing about the, the fountain that is filled with blood and we start to think about the Lord's Supper before us, uh, we pray that, that you would help us to worship and that you would help us to take the Lord's Supper in a way that honors you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and sing.